welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host Albert, and this is episode 81. 800 years in the making. Hello again, everybody. Um, it's great to be back. I have Julius here, as always. Hey there. Um, this is going to be an interesting show. This is going to be a little bit different than other episodes. Um, we're covering a game called Reconquista. Hey, Albert. Which is a... What was 800 eight? years in the making? The Reconquista was 800 years in the making. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to be telling you a little bit of history of, about the Reconquista, so, so you'll know more about why it lasted 800 years and what it was. I'll fill you that in on that soon. Okay. So this episode's been 800 years in the making. That's my... That's my I hope it doesn't take 800 years to edit. <laughs> oh, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> oh, that'd be bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so May has been a really busy month, especially since Mother's Day for me. I have done so little other than, than work and pick up kids and take kids places and, and feed kids sometimes. Sometimes? Oh, your poor children. <laughs> So I don't have much to cover this episode, I think, other than the game and a tiny bit of news. Should we go ahead and jump into that? Let's do it. Jump into the news. Okay. So first, well, first up and only up for me, um, Ignacy Trevishek just announced that there's a the next expansion for Imperial Settlers. Or he announced the next expansion for Imperial Settlers is called... I don't know what it's actually called, but it's the Atlantean expansion. And I'm sure that is the name, actually. I wrote it down. There. I actually think that is the name. Yep. And so this is, expansion is a new faction. You'll now have five factions with the game if you get this. Um, this expansion, this faction is pretty neat just because um, at, at the end of the game, your island of Atlantis sinks, so you lose all your faction cards, which means you don't get any victory points for those faction cards. So you got to find other ways to earn victory points. Throughout the game, or I guess through the the normal shared deck, and and this should be available sometime around August. Uh, I am looking forward to this to, to add a little more variety to the game. You already play a lot of Imperial Settlers. I haven't played it a lot. I've played it a little bit. I want to play it more. Mm-hmm. I want to get my kids to play it too. I tried teaching my children last year, and the timing just wasn't right for them, and it didn't work out at all. I've only played it solo using the rules in the base game, and honestly, that felt a little bit flat for me, and I've wanted to play the uh, the campaign rules, and I haven't yet, but I'm looking forward to trying that out. All right. Well, we'll have to talk about that on the podcast one time after we've both tried it out. All right. That's it for me. Okay. Um, well, I'll talk about two other things that are going on for me. Um, first one is Flip City. So I received an email from the guys over at Tasty Minstrel Games about one of their newer ga- newest games that's coming out, or is going to be coming out, called Flip City. Now, this game was uh, previously licensed from a Taiwanese designer, and it's going to be coming out straight to market, so there's not going to be a Kickstarter on this one. And the idea of Flip City, which um, was formerly called um, Design Town, is that all of the cards are double-sided. And you'll upgrade the various parts of your city by flipping over the cards to the other side, which will give you access to a more powerful card. And so you'll ignore the other side. Sometimes you'll have to degrade a, a card, move it back to the other side. But the idea of the game is you're building your deck up and flipping over the cards as you do it to get more powerful abilities. Um, the game ends when you get enough victory points normally, and... That's how you play it with multiplayer. 
The game is going to be supporting, though, a solo mode play. And I talked with Michael Mendes, the guy at T- the head of TMG, about how the solo game play. And he described it as more of a puzzle rather than a game, just based upon his expression of it. It didn't appear like Michael was actually, you know, giving it high praise. So if you're looking to play this just solo, I'm not so sure that that wouldn't be a good reason to do it. Uh, but if you're already getting it and you're and a game where you have this double-sided mechanic, which does sound interesting to me. For multiplayer, it sounds interesting to me to play with this idea of the double-sided mechanic for a deck builder game. It's an interesting twist. But when the designer describes it as uninteresting, I don't think it's going to be worth it just for solo. Yeah, that's. I'm glad he's being honest about that and straightforward, and you know, and you I, know what you're getting. I, I'm also. I'm glad that he's mentioning that it. I'm. I'm glad that he's saying it. I'm glad he's being honest about his opinions on it. And I guess I would rather almost not have printed one player on there. Make it a variant that it includes something a puzzle variant. Say that on the box, not listed as being for one player if you're not able to stand behind it personally that's true that's a good point you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have listed one player on design town or city or, or on flip city if you're not able to stand behind and say yes for one player we think you should get it just cross it off the box take okay. it off the box and say something like and it comes with this special puzzle variant so people who like puzzles but also like the game but people who like solo games won't <laughs> That's right. Yeah, just say it has a, a solo puzzle challenge. Yeah, that's what I think he should have done. I mean, I almost wish that for... I know that um, with the side-scroller shoot-up game, now I can't recall oh, what it's called. Oh, Kemble's Cascade. Right, but for Kemble's Cascade, right. So that game also doesn't come with the solo variant, but the designer of it keeps posting these puzzles online to his blog. And the puzzles look like fun. Now, unfortunately, I don't actually own a copy of Kemble's Cascade, um, and I don't think anyone around here owns a copy of it. So I'd like to play it. I'd like to see how good these puzzles are. But, you know, that's the sort of one where it doesn't say it's for solo, even though it has these puzzles. He, he could have done with printing somewhere that it has puzzles or including a QR code or a link to his website in the box or something like that, rather than just sort of having people discover it. To my knowledge, I don't think it says anything on the on the box or inside about these puzzles. And it should have. But the designer knew about it. The designer's the one who's publishing these puzzles, and he didn't want to include one player on it because it's a puzzle, not a game. And I appreciate that, and I also appreciate that he's publishing these puzzles because the puzzles are fun. Mm-hmm. That's so right. That's the way I think it should have been done. But just so you're aware and everyone else is aware, Flip City says one player, possibly not really recommended for one player. Try it your, try at your own risk. All right. Good to know. Next one thing that I want to talk about, it's not really so much news publicly, but it's at the very least news about what's going to be going on around here a bit. Um, A new game called Renegade is going to be coming out from Victory Point Games later in hopefully 2015. And Renegade is going to be a game for one to four players, where each player is playing a hacker on a network. And so you're going to be using your command cards to deploy measures and countermeasures to upload viruses and move around and drop down units or like miniature units, what are called um, replicators and propagators and trying to go through and you'll buy more cards and, and you're trying to make a run, a final run on the massive computer, the final boss almost. And when you defeat it, so you get points, you get to control it. 
So this game is still being in development. It's only going to be coming out late 2015. But recently, uh, Ricky of Ricky Royals, Ricky Wilkins of Ricky Royal, the YouTube channel, is the designer for this. And recently, Victory Point Games posted up that they were going to be taking playtesting for this. And I volunteered to do the playtesting. So Victory Point Games has told me that I'm allowed to go ahead and talk about the playtesting. I'm allowed to go ahead and talk about what's going on in the playtesting and what my impressions of the game are with some slight caveats about what things are are public and what things aren't. Um, But I'm going to be allowed to talk about it, and so hopefully other people will be able to enjoy listening to that. I want to be able to take a chance to talk about maybe how playtesting works, at least in this one. I, I can definitely say that every every playtesting I've done has been very different, that there's been different methods that different people have used for how they report things and how it works. But if you're interested in hearing about how playtesting works, so I hope I'll be able to talk you guys through how this playtest goes and also how the game goes, because I think that Renegade is going to be something that'll be interesting to a lot of solo players. And so you'll get to hear something about how it's developed and what goes into it. And hopefully at one point in time, we'll be able to talk with Ricky about it. Yeah, that'll be cool. I look forward to hearing more about that. So we're not, I'm not going to be allowed to post any pictures or anything about that, but I'll be able to you know talk about how the playtest is going and what I'm liking about the game, and hopefully there'll be a lot of things because I know that I'm excited to do this play this playtest. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, you got pretty lucky. You got picked because uh, Victory Point Games doesn't usually have the solo games out for playtesting very much. They usually seem to do that in house a lot. I'm not so familiar. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I I rarely see them mention any any of their solo games. The State of Siege never come up for playtesting. I know that I tried to do playtesting for their other game, um, Darkest Night, mm-hmm. went up when they had an expansion for it, but I didn't own the expansion. They only wanted you. I didn't own the base game, and they only wanted people to playtest if they own the base game. So I couldn't do that one. That <laughs> makes it trickier. It does. Well, I mean, different. There, there have been times where people have wanted to play test the base game and, and use a whole bunch of separate things. Like I know for games like with um, Summoner Wars, for example, are you familiar with Summoner Wars? I, I know of it. So other card games where it's an expandable card game. So sometimes they'll want you just to test how the expansion works with, with internal to the expansion. Ah, that's right. Because that's a standalone expansion in that case. Sometimes, yeah. Okay. So that's that's why you know it could be sometimes yes sometimes no yep. each one's different. Well, Verney, I I do look forward to hearing your your thoughts about how the PlayStation experience is going, and I think people would enjoy hearing that because people a lot of people haven't played Tesla games and they might not know what that's like. So hopefully I'll be able to talk more about that as uh, we progress through this one. Cool. All right, so that's it for the news. I think this time. All right, then on to Kickstarter. So the first game I want to talk about is Skull Tales. So let's go ahead and get this Kickstarter report started. Um, Skull Tales, this is actually the second time we're going to be talking about this on the podcast. Last time we pulled up Skull Tales because this was actually available for our last podcast. And Albert pulled it up and we started looking at it and we tried to figure out how the one-player mode works. And it does say that it supports solo play. But it's not clear how it supports solo play. So we went ahead and emailed the guys over at Four, More, Four Moon Studios who make it, and they explained to us how the solitaire mode works. Now, before I do that, let me describe to you how the multiplayer version works. 
The way the multiplayer version works is there's three phases to the game. There's the adventure phase, there's the voyage phase, and there's the port phase. Um, now, for the adventure phase, which is, quote, the most important phase of the game, so you'll be able to have challenges and adventures where there's a campaign, and you'll have stats where you'll you'll go through an island, which is built modularly off of these tiles, and you're exploring the island, and you're collecting loot and gear, and making challenges, and encountering enemies, and pillaging, and looting, and plundering. You're doing all the pirate, the, the really piratey land stuff. And after you finish all of that, you'll go on to the voyage phase. And the voyage phase will take part on this other big island, on this other big map. But this time it's going to be a big sea map. Now that when you're in the, the land part, the adventure part, so it's a bunch of smaller tiles that come together to build off the island that you're exploring. After you're exploring it, you have a big set of what looks like four tiles that you will explore through the islands. And make your way to voyage back to harbor. And so this time you're having to voyage through the obstacles on the water. And so you'll have sea monsters or weather or coast guards or a merchant ship that you can plunder. And so this whole time you're having to manage it. And the way this works is all the players will actually work together under the command of one player who plays as the captain. Um, and so here, this is where the, the, the more cooperative portions because even though you know you're trying to achieve personal benefit and personal glory here you have to all work together to command a ship together and then after you get back so you do the port phase um where everyone gets to pick a new captain and the captain gets new crew or improves the ship and everyone else gets new gear and skills and they basically cash in on what they've done and then they can go out and do more venturing if they want and so that's the three phases now then for solo play, so we spoke with Foreman Studios about it, and so with solo play, you don't become a captain. You just have to finish adventures. Now that when you have only one character, each adventure is a lot more difficult because with sometimes you'll need to have, for example, agility or strength or intelligence. And so everyone has their different strengths and their different skills. And you'll have to go and you'll have to beat that all by yourself so you can't go and you know, say that I'll go do the one that I'm really good at and let someone else go do the things that they're really good at. You have to be sort of good at all of them, which will make it more difficult in general since you'll have to balance out and be, try and be good at everything and I don't know like how, how well you'll be good at everything. And then the whole voyage phase, the entire map board or the entire port phase, so you won't, have, you won't be doing anything on a ship. That whole board goes away. And the whole port phase goes away. All of that goes away in solo play. Okay, so you're basically playing individual dungeon crawl type adventures. So it seems. Yeah, and, and it's worth mentioning this game is when you look at the pictures of the of the people on the island, it, it reminds me of Descent. When I see this, you know, it looks like Descent tiles with little miniatures on it. Did we mention this game has miniatures? I don't think we did. This game does have <laughs> miniatures. Yep, um, but that's another miniatures game. They are nice-looking miniatures. Yeah, the tiles do remind me of Descent, and it does look like there's going to be rolling. So it does remind me of Descent, although I don't think that there's going to be miniatures for the enemies. I think that only you get miniatures, maybe. No, there are also enemy miniatures, actually. Skeletons, cannibals, mummies. Okay. So everyone biters. gets miniatures. 
<laughs> um, but unlike in Descent, it's also it's an AI. There's there's no one controlling the island. It's an AI adventure for that. Uh, okay. So, so is the game actually, if you're playing multiplayer, is it fully cooperative? It's semi-cooperative. It's actually semi-competitive. Because okay. everyone's in competition, but at certain points in time, you're all on the same team. So you're on the same team going against the island, but all of you want to do better on the island. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a fight because you want to be captain. Captain has the most responsibilities, but you want to be captain. So, because captains get the most prestige. Ah, uh, I see. So, depending on how you do the island, it determines who wins captain. Yes. Got it. Okay, that sounds interesting. But doesn't work for solo it play. It really doesn't right. work for solo play. The whole thing. I mean. It's too bad that you have to cut out half the game to make it work for solo play, but you kind of do. I mean, it's probably not half the game. Let's say even it's a quarter of the game. You have to cut away a quarter of the game to make it work for solo play. Yep. That's unfortunate. Because I think that when you have a solo game that does make itself look like a real regular game, I just feel like it's going to be a stronger game. You know, when when you play, when when it plays the same for the player as you would in the regular game, I feel like that's a stronger solo game. Now, this game may be also a very powerful solo game. I don't know. I haven't tried it. It's still on Kickstarter. I didn't I didn't get any sort of copies or anything tested out. So I'm just basing myself off of that one fact alone. No real idea. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, if you're interested in backing it, because I think that for the, the semi-competitive version, for multiplayer, it does look like fun. Again, it does have a nice set of minis, and it does look like it would be fun. So go ahead and look into it if you're interested. Um, it's an $85 pledge, though, for the game. Once again, it does have minis. And it's already funded. So that's uh, Skull Tales. Next one that we're going to talk about is Defenders of the Last Stand by Richard Lanius. You heard of him? Defenders, I've heard of him. Wait a minute. Maybe just a little around. <laughs> so in Defenders of the Last Stand, you are playing as um, an apocalyptic world with mutants that are trying to attack you. Um, different, I, I guess, I'm not sure if they're all mutants, but they. I think they're all mutants. There's different factions of the mutants. There's the Earthers, the Road Riders, the Techies, and the Monstrosities. And you are trying to, I think it depends upon the mission that you're doing, but in at least one of the missions. So you're trying to collect up enough stuff from around the area and bring it back to home base so that you can escape and get away and get to salvation away from all these mutants. Um, well, now salvation's a different game. That is the road to salvation, but I think it's still, <laughs> I think it's still salvation. <laughs> It's huh. it's still salvation and it's still mutants. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Mutants. It's the next zombies. Ah, oh, good. Finally done with zombies. <laughs> I don't think it counts. <laughs> I don't think it counts. But yeah, this one this one also does does similar because, um, or not similar to Road to Salvation, but it's it's the mutants stand in for zombies, I suppose. Or stand in for plague tokens. Um, in this one, so you get to use your actions to different things. You'll move around the board, or you'll resolve adventure tokens, um, or pick up other tokens, or attack the raiders, the monstrosities. Now, the monstrosities are the raiders are um, things that are just around. They're like the the mini type of monsters, 
and so they're easy to get rid of. The monstrosities, though, are much harder to get rid of. They have more powerful effects and can do more powerful things, and they'll take a bit more work to get rid of. So even more work is to get rid of the leaders. The leaders will do just a lot of damage to you, and you'll have to sabotage them or attack them over multiple turns, and so they'll be very hard to pick up. But eventually you'll be able to... uh, do whatever it is that your scenario requires you to do. And the only one that I've had a chance to research in has been the one where you collect enough stuff to escape. Mm, okay. And this is by the same people that make Agents of Smirsh mm-hmm. and Run, Fight, or Die. Mm-hmm. Look at that. So they've, they've made a few Kickstarter games already. One interesting thing that I thought about this is uh, it's uh, the base pledge is 65 which gets the game, and it does come with 100 miniatures. So you get the the big clan leaders, the minions, the heroes, and anything else. But if you add in up to $81 instead of $65, so you get an extra 18 custom dice to use with the game. Okay, that's interesting. So if you don't do that, you just get regular dice? If you don't do that, you just get regular dice, yeah. That's an interesting way to do that. That is an interesting way to do that. I appreciate that because... Personally, for me, the, my most favorite thing to see in these is custom dice. So, granted, this one's expensive, um, but I, I really like seeing custom dice. And I'll bring this up again later, but here, if custom dice is someone does it for you, you'd rather be like, ah, I'll save money. I, I don't need the custom dice. You can save money. You can bring it down to 65. So I kind of like that menu option. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like build your own game. Yeah, and I'm going to bring this up again in uh, a couple of minutes with someone else who did something very similar. But yeah, you kind of you kind of get to pick your options if you just want the miniatures. If you if you don't if custom dice isn't what does it for you, you don't need it. Cool, okay. So that's Defender's Last Stand. All right. So next up is The Dwarves the Saga. The Dwarves the Saga by Pegasus Peel, which is absolutely running away with it right now. This one has actually been out for a while in German. And I'm not going to try and pronounce all the German names. But it's actually been out in German for a while. So this is already a popular game, and it's just coming out in English at this point in time. And what the dwarves are is this is a... um, Yeah, so the way the dwarves work is it's a cooperative game where you get a certain amount of quests. And so you'll have quest cards that come out, which require you to do things like conquer people or convince somehow interact with different things on the board. So go places, do things, put scenario tokens in different places. So the quest tokens all are very different and have different amounts of things. And so those will come out throughout the different games. And then even more different is you'll have different side quests. And so the different side quests also add to some differences. You'll have to travel to certain places or draw different, and or and once again, you'll do different things. You'll travel places, you'll meet people, lose health to fight battles at different places. And in each place, you'll, ha- you'll interact with those. Now, then, those are the sort of things that you'll have to be doing in order to. Hey, listeners, Julius here. Sorry for the abrupt interruption for the Kickstarter report. I was recording last night when a brief emergency popped up and we had to interrupt. But we will have to pick up with the Kickstarter report. Hopefully in the next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Assault on Doom Rock's expansion that came out, Zero Agents, The Hunters, and Blackout. And we'll go ahead and cover those next time. I'm definitely going to be interested in talking about some of those more in the next podcast. So 
Albert had a chance to record a review and some history on Reconquista while I was at the hospital. Uh, everyone's fine, and we're back from the hospital. I'm going to turn back over to Albert now. Bye. Okay. There is no Julius, and I think I should go out because it is getting late. Tomorrow's a school day for me. So next up is La Reconquista. Uh, before we talk about the game, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the period known as La Reconquista. It, it basically refers to an 800-year period from 720 AD, more or less, through 1492, the year Columbus discovered America. Um, the, La Reconquista is basically when the Muslim Empire controlling the Iberian Peninsula were gradually expelled by Christians. The the Muslims living in Europe are usually known as the Moors. The, now, the Iberian Peninsula is the the landmass that contains Spain and Portugal. You could use the term Spain and Portugal or Iberian Peninsula interchangeably. Now, the thing is about the Reconquista, I think, is that it's not really a, a reconquering, as the name implies. It's not, or at least it's kind of not accurate to call it a single event that happened. It's like calling the Dark Ages a single event. So to understand La Reconquista better, you really need to go back to the fall of the Roman Empire around near the year 400 AD. At the time the Roman Empire fell, the life in the Iberian Peninsula was relatively stable with a strong civic government. The huge empire government was not doing so well, obviously, because it fell. But at the local level, things were not so bad. As the Roman Empire collapsed the Visigoths ended up taking over the Iberian Peninsula starting around 409. And they basically took the job of ruling, but the life at the local level continued as it was before for the most part. They weren't great rulers, and they spent a lot of their time fighting and usurping each other, And while life for the natives continued. right? It's just under different management, you could th- say. Now, in fact, during this period that lasted around 200 years, it was so unstable for the Visigothic rulers that there were only two rulers that had sons that actually ruled for more than two years also. Um, so think about that. Usually after the king dies, the prince takes over, but during this period, those princes, those sons of kings, were dead or dethroned within two years. They just didn't last. It was great to be the king, but terrible to be the king's son. So while all this is going on, uh, local civic responsibilities were pretty much taken up by the only organization left with any real stability. It was the church. This ended up being a, a tragic problem for Jews and probably anybody that wasn't Catholic. And that actually plays a role in, in what comes up. Now, by 711, the Iberian Peninsula was a place with basically stable societies, but nobody in charge with enough power to deal with an invasion. And it just so happens, an army invaded, led by Tariq ibn Ziyad, the Muslim governor of Tangier. He landed in Gibraltar, and basically seven years later, by 718... The Iberian Peninsula was largely under Moorish control. Only a few of the regions that the, the Moors didn't care about remained under Visigothic control, and these did offer some resistance for a while. 
but most of the peninsula was easily conquered, probably because little resistance was offered. Now, once taken over, most of the locals wouldn't have had any issue with the new rulers. I mean, they've been seeing new rulers every few years anyway, and uh, this time they just happened not to be Visigoths. Seven years later, by 718, the Iberian Peninsula was largely under Moorish control. Only a few regions that the Moors didn't care about remained under Visigothic control, and these actually offered some resistance, but not much. Um, but most of the peninsula was easily conquered, probably because little resistance was offered. Once taken over, most of these locals wouldn't ha have any issues with the new ruler. I mean, they'd been senior rulers all the time, and just now these guys weren't Visigoths, that's all. Also, the new rulers were more tolerant and allowed any faith to worship freely, so it, it there just wasn't much need for the conquered people to rebel. I'm not saying it didn't happen, it just didn't happen as much as it would have if the people had thought of uh, invaders as oppressors. So, Reconquista is said to have started around 718, 720, 22, somewhere in there, nobody really knows. At But at the Battle of Covodonga, at the Battle of Covadonga, Early on, there was resistance from Visigothic Christian Peloye in the region of Asturias, and this is in the northern part of Spain. It's a mountainous region, and Peloye's forces used guerrilla tactics. Now, a Moorish force was sent out to, to rout his army, or his forces, but they were destroyed at the Battle of Covadonga. After that, there were very few other rebellions for a long while. There was some infighting between various Muslims and Berbers, some of the Moors that had come to Europe. But that pretty much ended around 756 when the last Umayyad prince, Abd al-Harman, arrived in Spain and managed to consolidate his power and basically took over the ruling the Muslim, the Moors there. Now, the Umayyad dynasty had actually ruled the Caliphate Empire, think, you know, Prince of Persia, all that area controlled by those. But the when the Umayyad Caliph was killed, the last one, his family was hunted down and killed too. Abd al-Harman escaped to Cordoba, and then he set up his new dynasty ruling Spain. And at least for a while, this was an independent state called the Emirate of Cordoba, because it was centered in the city of Cordoba. The Umayyads actually ruled until 1031, it was almost 300 years, and life was relatively peaceful in Iberia. Now, I need to emphasize the term relative peace. There's always skirmishes and battles going on in, in, between the different sides during this 800-year period. Um, especially true at the borders between the the Moorish and the Christian lands, wherever that happened to be at the time. Now, meanwhile, the Christians never really lost control of Asturias, and that region they controlled slowly expanded, but it was controlled by many small and petty leaders with no real consolidation of power. In the late 10th century, a Muslim leader, Al-Mansur, attacked them. Unfortunately for the Moors, this caused the balance of power to shift in that region and actually led to a Christian kingdom forming under a single ruler, the Sancho the Great. Somewhere around 1000 AD, the Umayyad Caliph of Cordoba fell apart and the rule disintegrated into many small kingdoms. So sort of a, a reversal of the of fortune, you could look at it, right? You know, the Christians went from scattered small kingdoms to something combined, and the Moors went from something combined to a scattered kingdom. This made it easy for Sancho the Great to lay the siege to Cordoba and seize it. And over the next 70 years, other Muslim-controlled cities started to fall to Christian rulers. And at this point, we're now about 400 years into the 800 years of reconquering, and it sounds like things are pretty much done. Um, however, the that loss of so much of Spain led to another invasion from North Africa. The Christians' control didn't actually last very long, and eventually control reverted to the Moors. 
And now it's worth noting that around this time, in 1095, the Crusades began. The Crusades were the Europeans attacking the Holy Lands of the Mideast, Jerusalem, and that sort of thing, that area. Prior to this, there had been very little consolidated Christian effort to fight against the Moors. The, all the wars had generally been small-scale things between different kingdoms. Now the Christians have basically declared a holy war uh, against the Muslims, and they're trying to fight Jerusalem and, and take back take control of the Middle East. The it, it really impacted, I think, the uh, the relationship between Christians and Moors in Spain. And I think, especially from this point forward, there's probably very little opportunity for reconciliation of any kind. And by early 12th century. Portugal asserted its independence and was officially recognized by the papacy in 1143 as an independent country. Um, Christian control of Spain continued to advance south, and by 1248, only the city of Grenada was really still under Moorish control. Um, it was the last holdout, and it basically remained a thriving center of Muslim culture until it finally fell. In 1479, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella became the rulers of Spain, and they decided they needed to eliminate the last Moorish outpost, and they eventually took control of Granada when it was surrendered by Boabdil, the Muslim leader of that city. The king and queen decreed that all Muslims and Jews must convert or leave Spain, and the Reconquista was over. Um, so now, like I said, I don't think the term Reconquista is really accurate. It wasn't like the the Muslims came in with the goal of taking over Europe, attacked it, and, and then the Christians spent 800 years fighting to get it back. Um... Nothing was really that deliberate, probably until about the year 1200 or so even, um, when things did start to change and become deliberate. As a matter of fact, the term Reconquista didn't really show up, I think, at least till 1000. And, and one of the books I use as a source information doesn't even start until, I think, the year 1050 or so. Now, the Moorish control of Spain did have some lasting consequences. For example, place names, words, and architecture are heavily influenced by by Muslim and Arab cultures. For example, some words with Arab origins are ajedegues, which is chess in Spanish. Alcade means mayor. Jarabe means syrup, like cough syrup. I remember mom would always used to tell me when I was sick, tomate un jarabe, take, your, take some syrup. Um, one of my favorites, zana, zanahoria, which is Spanish for carrot. All these are words with Arab origins. And finally, one thing I didn't really cover in all this is el seed. He's probably the most famous person associated with the Reconquista. He was a knight from the region of Castile named Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, and he lived from 1043 through 1099, about 50, a little more than 50 years. He was called El Cid by the Moors and El Campeador by the Christians. And he actually fought on both sides, first serving the Christians, and then he was exiled by Alfonso VI, and possibly because of an unauthorized attack into Grenada that was actually pretty successful. But it seems unlikely you would exile somebody that did something so well. So there must have been other reasons or something else going on between these guys to cause El Cid to get exiled. I mean, maybe this was just the last straw and, and finally Alfonso VI said, I've had it, you're out of here. But it, it's not clear. So at this point, he then went and served the Moors and, and fought with them for about six years against the Christians. And I guess that's when hearing that name, El Cid. Um... But he was eventually called back by King Alfonso, but he seemed at that point he seemed pretty much have stayed off the battles or out of the battles. As a matter of fact, he and he did end up ruling a, a region for a while and was actually very tolerant of different religions 
and had both Christians and Moors living under his rule peacefully. He was a very capable leader and an asset to whoever he was serving. And interestingly, he would hold brainstorming sessions before battle just to figure out what the best strategy was. He actually would get all his guys together and, and come up with a tactic and to what to do. And, and that sort of tactic today would probably be considered psychological warfare, interestingly enough. So, so it's definitely a very unique, very colorful person in the history of La Reconquista. And, and there you go. That's a 800 years of history right there in just a couple minutes. And that leads us to today's game, Reconquista, by David Kershaw. It was designed last year, 2014. It was actually part of the Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest and won for Best War Game. Uh, the game was subsequently picked up by White Dog Games, and you could now get a copy from them. And White Dog Games does sell games as print and play files you could print yourself and put the game together yourself, or you could buy a Ziploc game or the box version of the game. Now this is a, it's a nice small war game. Um, what you get is a, a map of the Iberian Peninsula and a bunch of counters in a rule book. In this game, the map is divided into different regions, six different regions. I'm sorry, five different regions, and each region is then divided in, into small areas. The game is going to play over twenty turns, and you're going to play the Christian forces trying to gain control from the Muslims. So when you start the game at the beginning, you you, you only control a very small part of the, the map. And hopefully by the end you control as much as possible. So the game brings 100 counters. Um, not very many unit types. As a matter of fact, I think there's only 8 unit types total. There's garrisons for both Muslim and Christians. There's armies for Muslims and Christians. And there's knights for the Christians. And then there's rebels and neutral armies. And that's it. And the other counters are cities forts and turn markers and some things like that so this is a probably an area slash region control kind of game so let me describe the uh, turn real quick now the game is actually divided into seven phases the first phase is rebellion you're going to roll dice and see in which region there's a rebellion and there's a few different types of rebellions and this is going to be determined by die roll it could be um the america rebel and clear out the forces from a city or there could be a small rebellion with just some units. And and generally when these rebellions happen, sometimes cities change sides or sometimes rebel forces take over that area and replace whatever units were there before. After that, the second phase is a random events phase. You're going to roll two dice again, um, 2d6, and you're going to have 11 possible different events that could happen. And these could be good or bad and... They often can have, well, yeah, they often can have really big effects on the game. It could be El Cid could show up, and when he does show up, he could be on either side. You roll die to see to see if he's going to fight for the Christians or, or the Moors. Um, you could have mercenaries show up, um, military orders, basically knights that show up to fight for you. A lot of different things can happen. Again, some are good, some are bad. After that, you have the third phase, which is when you raise your income and spend it. You get money depending on how much of the map you control, basically. Um, it's a little more detailed than that, but not much. And then you could spend it to raise new armies, uh, garrisons, build cities, convert cities from Muslim to Christian. The, the next phase, the fourth phase, is where you move your armies. There are some restrictions on how the armies can move. They don't travel very far. Uh, you know, medieval times, roads are not very good, and so armies wouldn't go very far during the turn. 
As they move, if they encounter enemies, they may battle or lay siege to a city. Again, it sort of depends on the rules. I'm not going to get into too much of the details. And that would be the part of the movement phase still. Um, you're going to resolve all your combat during that, other than the sieges. And the next phase will be where the Muslims react. Every turn there's a Muslim reaction, which is generally maybe building up forts or armies in a different in different regions. Each turn there's going to be one one action that's going to happen for that. If armies show up, they may start traveling and attacking you. Um, basically, if you get more than two, more than one army unit in a space, because of this uh, Muslim reaction phase, they start moving from that space out, and wherever they encounter enemy forces, they fight them. The phase six is when you resolve the sieges. Sieges can be pretty brutal. If you lose the siege, everybody in the city's gone. And phase seven, the end of turn with a cleanup. Yeah, and that's basically how the game's going to go. It plays pretty quick. The full game has 20 turns. There's actually... The game brings 20 scenarios. is basically starting to different turns. And if the scenarios are sort of recreating the setup over time of where, where the different forces were and who controlled what over time. So it sort of recreates history. Um, so the first scenario is one t- is starts in turn one. The second starts in turn two. The third turn three and so on. The 20th scenario actually starts at turn 20, the last turn. So you only actually play that one turn. Um, I haven't tried that. I've tried playing from turn one and I've tried playing from turn 12. And I found them both very fun. Um, and I especially enjoyed being able to see how things looked at the different periods in times historically. So yeah, I've, I've very briefly described the game and the rules. And I've not gone into a lot of details about how the game works. Um... I will say I really enjoyed the game. I found it a lot of fun. The The rules are pretty simple, though, though I admit some things are a little confusing to figure out, but once you do, the, the gameplay is very simple. Um, fortunately, David is on BGG and very active, and if you pose a question, he'll answer it really quickly, usually. Um, and that's very nice. The, the gameplay is reminiscent of another game designed by David Kershaw, at least part of it was for me, Solitaire Caesar. The, the way the enemies attack and move to me was reminiscent of that game in that they sort of move randomly in a path and each unit each turn one unit stays behind and the rest keep moving forward until there's no units left that they can move i had enjoyed that in solitaire caesar it was nice to see that mechanic again if this being a white dogs game the the quality of the counters is amazing they're super thick really nice counters with nice artwork and just a pleasure to play with um so this is a fun game. It probably t- a full game probably takes me about, I'd say, an hour and a half to play. It, it, it's hard to say, you know, especially when I get interruptions a lot at home with the kids or the pets. But it, it's a very fun game, very simple. I, I find that I really wish I had been writing down my gameplay as it went along because I would have enjoyed writing Session Report. It was really neat to see how, how in part because of random events and in part just because of the the way the game's playing out, different regions just switch sides and things happen, and it just paints a really neat history. Whether it, whether it matches what actually happened or not, it just still ends up being a really, for me, a really interesting story that that evolves. So yeah, so that's Dragon Quista. I highly recommend it. Oh, let me let me tell you what other games uh, David Kershaw's designed that are solitary. There's a few of them. I've only got experience with two of them, but he's done Barbarossa Solitaire, Solitaire Caesar. 
Vietnam Solitaire and Vietnam Solitaire Special Edition, also published by White Dog Games. And, and that game actually inspired Don't Tread on Me, the American Revolution Solitaire board game, which I believe is also White Dog's title. ACW Solitaire, which is another PMP game. And, and published by White Dog Games. So they've actually published a few of his games. They published that as the Confederate Rebellion. Uh, Irish Freedom and Reconquista. So he's actually got one, two, three, four, five, six, six-ish, six to nine solo games, depending on how you want to count. Um, yep, so that's the game. I hope you enjoyed hearing about it, and thank you for listening to that. Now we've got one thing left to resolve for this episode, the uh, the results of the contest. Remember last time we had a contest, I'm giving away two sets, two copies of uh, 11Zs for one. Um, to enter, all you have to do is send me an email with a, telling me what your favorite tea is, or if you hate tea or whatever, just you know send me an email mentioning this. And I got four entries, and so two of these lucky four people... And so two of these four people are going to be lucky and win a copy of the games. Um, so the first person to enter was Ryan Mays. He said if he had to pick tea, it would be Earl Grey, but he's not—he's really a coffee man. Uh, Dave, he's not a tea fan. Tastes like funny water. You know, I agree about some of the teas when it comes to that. I, I especially dislike uh, dark teas myself. Um, black tea. Aaron, he says, my favorite kind of tea is green tea with toasted rice. Sounds really nice. I've never had that. Uh, it says it's good stuff, and as a close second, but not technically tea, is yerba mate, which is something that you could get in South America. I think it's a South American t- tea. Those he said it's not technically tea. And finally, David Augsier entered, and he says he just likes boring old regular Lipton iced tea, which actually I don't think I've ever had. I'm not even sure that I have. So I've got a die in front of me, a D4. I'm going to roll it twice to see who wins copies of this game. The first winner is... One, Ryan Mays. Congratulations, Ryans. And number two, three, Aaron. Congratulations, Aaron. So I will contact both of you guys to get your addresses and mail you your, your game. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractalude on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.